we are we're back this week with another installation of our Calvary Young Adult Sex is Good News live podcast. Back with us, we have Steve Hobbs and Brian Williams. I'm Sarah Sarwinski, and we're going to be continuing answering, hopefully answering some questions that our listeners, our YA attenders have been asking in regards to sex and sexuality. So thank you guys so much for wanting to come back and dive deeper and try to address some some questions that may be hard to answer. Glad to be here. Thanks for the opportunity. Yeah. Well, I know last time we were kind of making our way through this this list and um, I just loved that after kind of we went offline, um, Steve, I think it was you in particular, highlighted this first question as one that we didn't we don't want to miss because it, it, it sounds like it does carry a little bit of maybe some hurt or some confusion around. And I just love your heart and Brian to just steward through um, some of those things. So we'll get right to it. Um, someone had asked me, um, does God punish through infertility when it comes to sexual addiction or even sexual promiscuity? When we think about this question, I, the first thing I wanted to point out was we don't want to miss um, the emotional heaviness under this question. Yeah. Um, and it's sometimes so easy to answer the question that's being posed to us without addressing the real question underneath it. Mm -hmm. Hard to know in this example, because it certainly is an interesting question and certainly could be a hypothetical. Um, and these are the kind of questions that people of faith has, have been asking for uh, thousands of years. You know, essentially, does God punish people for the bad things they do yeah. you know on a day-to-day -day basis you know if i do this is god going to punish me for it if i do this is god going to reward me for it those kind of things um so it's an interesting question but it's important perhaps to think about that if this is a question that feels very personal to the person asking the question or to other people out there um then it might be worth you taking some time to explore with someone who you trust, a trustworthy pastor or a trustworthy Christian therapist, um, why this question came up for you. And do you have concerns that God is judging you or is punishing you for something you've done? Um, and if you can find someone who you do trust, who is competent and capable to help you work through that, that would be good. I, I, I love what you said. I think it is important to always, and we've talked about this, but the why for you and when you are posing these questions, if this is something that is resonating with anyone personally, um, it, it usually has deeper roots and it's not going to be a, a quick, easy answer to even maybe even remove some of that concern um, in that moment. And we need people to walk with us in the long haul. And convenient for us. I, we have a Christian counselor and a trustworthy pastor on hand. Um, but yeah, I would say if at any point with what we're talking about, I think that's, that's really solid advice. Yeah, I agree. I think, Steve, something that's interesting is what we're really questioning is the Lord himself and his relationship to us. Yeah. And under that, I, I think of thinking back to the episode where we talked about shame mm. and what our view of what God views of us matters a lot. Yeah. And kind of underneath some of these questions is, and this isn't an indictment of like, you need to get your mind to think better, but you need to ask the questions to see where the healing is that's needed yeah. so that then you can move. Because this probably isn't just a question that relates to this area. Yeah. Um, it's probably an undercurrent that kind of bleeds into other areas as well. 
mm-hmm. um, because it's about identity and how we view ourselves or how we question, we wonder, ponder uh, how God views us, which is significant to our identity and how we go about life. Yeah, if we address this question purely from a, a cognitive approach, you, there's not going to be any emotional satisfaction in that. Mm-hmm. So we should attend to both. Um, not knowing what that emotional content is that might be underneath this question, I, I think it's still good for us to attend to the the more theological, theoretical part of it. So Absolutely. does God punish through infertility when it comes to sexual addiction or sin, or but let's just say sexual addiction and infertility, because those seem to be related in, in that sense, and they're both related to sex. Um, I would say in a word, no. From a biblical perspective, uh, infertility, I would say, is a result of, of sin in the world. But a particular instance of infertility is not the result of the sin of a particular person. Hmm. For example, there are people who have sinned, and we might think, this is not how I think, but someone might be able to reasonably say, oh, they deserve to be punished, and maybe that punishment, an appropriate punishment would be infertility. Or on the other hand, we might say that, you know, this person doesn't deserve infertility, but I would not say that um, there's no connection between what someone has done and their infertility, unless something has happened in the physical world, right? Where there's a disease that's contracted, an injury of sorts, some kind of physical challenge, medical challenge that's making infertility difficult. But that's not the direct result of that person disobeying God. Yeah, I agree. Like we see pretty clearly, I think in the Old Testament, there's there's instances of infertility and there's questions or suppositions that like perhaps this is a curse from God. But we also see that it's children are a blessing from God. And we see that God works through that. Ultimately, uh, we've talk about this pretty often, Sarah and I do, how often we have to look at the whole of scripture. Yeah. And in all of those instances, you've really got to zoom out and look at, take the whole thing. And you see examples like Job, Mm -hmm. like there's not a one-to-one correspondence of sin and suffering in this world and how we operate. It, It just isn't that way. You know, we also see throughout how often it said, like, look at the the wicked who are prospering. How can this be? <laughs> like, so, so you got to look at both sides in a way. Um, you know, John nine, where he says, they question who about the blind man who sinned this man or his parents that he is blind. And Jesus is like, no, no, that's not what this is about. And Jesus makes that clear. Um, so I think in terms of looking at both sides of it, it aim. This is actually personal for Amy and I. It took several years for us of trying um, to have children and praying and seeking. And I know our story is one that is different than other people. There are people who have suffered significantly more than we have and wrestled in different ways. Um, But I know through our, now we have children (laughs) and that's a wonderful thing. And we're so thankful and blessed by that. But before that, we had no promise of children. We had no security of children. So this question comes up because it makes sense because there's suffering and you're wondering why, and you don't, you want to know why this is something I long for. This is something I've wanted, but ultimately I guess like under that, something that was helpful in that time was that like, like we shouldn't conclude that infertility is a 
particular punishment from God, but at the same time, not to conclude that God is bound to bless us with fertility because I'm obedient. Mm-hmm. Like it, it kind of, we have to take both ends of the equation and to be able to walk and say, children are a fantastic blessing. And I'm so thankful if we get to have that. And we do. And now I'm so, I'm so thankful for that, but to not demand it of God because I deserve it. Okay. Kind of got to look at both sides. Uh, that helped me um, to not see this as God is punishing me or punishing us, but that that would be a great blessing. But God has also still blessed me to nav and walk through that and, and delight in the abundance of blessing God has given. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And I think you, you mentioned it. There are some instances in, in the Bible where people are either punished or rewarded for their choice to honor or disobey God. I think what's important in those situations is that um, they were very rare and mm-hmm. that God used them because they were ex- an exceptional circumstance that could be used to model something to other people. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't meant only as to reward or punish a particular person. It was meant to model something greater for the people who are reading the scripture or experiencing this at the time. And so because we know that God is not currently communicating, you know, canonical scripture anymore, you know, he's not going to make that one-to-one correlation that he did in the Old Testament or the New Testament. We would have no way to differentiate between instances of divine intervention and natural occurrences. It would really be in many ways unfair for him to say, well, sometimes, it, you know, I am divinely intervening and sometimes I'm not, and you just have to figure out what, because it would, it would leave us without a, a, the ability to really know when he's responding to something and when it's just the natural occurrence of the world. That's really good. And I think the only thing I would have to to add or even expand on is just the idea of we're all sinful people and there are going to be things in our life. Like I know this question has come up for me outside of this context, kind of that greater why that Brian was asking of, I've sinned, therefore is God going to withhold? And sin does have repercussion as you're talking about, Stephen. Um, We see that in the world. Sometimes we are affected by brokenness that we did not necessarily initiate but that is, that is our state on the side of eternity. And I think I would just also welcome whoever is asking a question or something similar back to that place of understanding that like what Christ, you know, the forgiveness that Christ offers us on the cross. Like if it is the sexual addiction that's hanging over you, that is starting to put implications in your life that, you know, you're linking to things that you would perceive as negative or as an effect. Start there. Start with that, that invitation back to the forgiveness that Christ offers, the grace that he offers, like your standing before God doesn't change necessarily because what Christ did was it's done. Like it, it is that universal invitation, blessing on your life, that grace that we don't deserve. And it doesn't start to diminish, you know, or get chipped away by sin. It's, it's far more powerful than that. I was in second Corinthians three today and it talks about like, we're no longer under the law. We're not under, and it's literally called the ministry of death but we have this confidence because we walk with the spirit and where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Um, and it's just, I think that to me is a reminder that I need often to stop equivocating, you know, like negative repercussion directly to action that is somehow like irreversible though. I'm someone who walks with Christ. Um, and it doesn't mean that no negative repercussion will go away because again, maybe it wasn't initiated by you, but it is part of living in the world that is broken but to really start there with your heart um, and understanding that your standing before God does not change. 
And again, like you were saying, to walk through that with others and help others understand the paradigm you're creating for yourself or narratives or internal scripts, because it can start to affect our view of God, ourself, and others. And I think that is probably the most important thing to explore in this question. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, thanks. Well, hopping into the next question, um, it, this came from another conversation I was having with some members of our young adults ministry, and it is, what is emotional, quotes around emotional, dating, <laughs> um, and why can it be harmful even without physical intimacy? So I'm going to need some help on this <laughs> Okay. I, uh, I'm happy to be ignorant here. I, I don't know everything. And I'm certainly not uh, in the YA category. So maybe this is a new concept or a terminology I'm not familiar with. I don't know what emotional dating is. So is, is this a, a common phrase that you guys are aware of? I would say yes. Um, and it, it's probably semantics because this has been around forever. But it, it, it's, it's essentially this concept that you get really emotionally close to someone without clarity. This happens often between single people who are like usually emotionally available, but you start to treat one another almost like another generation would probably previously categorize as like a dating relationship based on like time spent, communication, information you indulge or don't indulge. And suddenly like you are in a more emotionally intimate relationship than maybe a casual friend or, you know, someone who you've defined as like a family member, a brother and sister, you know, it, it, it starts to tread these ambiguous waters where one person or both people are becoming invested without maybe having labeled anything or putting like common language around things. And it can cause damage when someone begins to address it. Brian, do you want to add anything? Yeah, I think it's, it's emotional intimacy without uh, commitment. Mm-hmm. or communication <laughs> clear boundaries but um does that bring clarity steve and i'm curious i really am curious about your thoughts on this steve yeah well, well i want to hear what you have to say because it sounds like you have some thoughts on it too so that's okay well i've used this before i've even talked about it in a sermon the idea of the stick shift we talked about it even in the last one this analogy has been so helpful to me and I think fits within this so well, because so if we're going in a car and you have a manual transmission, or maybe you have never driven a stick shift, so you have no idea what I'm talking about. Maybe you've ridden a 10 speed bicycle and then you can understand. Um, if you're in the wrong gear for the speed you're going, it's gonna be difficult. Maybe even it might cause you to crash or stall the engine if you're driving a car. Being in the right gear for the speed you're at is really important, super important equal to the level of your commitment is really important. Um, And not just commitment, but like the level of your knowledge and understanding of each other and all that kind of stuff. The level of your communication, like there's different ways to look at it. Some people talk about like a stool and you have the four legs of the stool. You've got uh, physical, cognitive, emotional, and spiritual, those four forms of intimacy and all legs, all four legs should be growing evenly. Um, if you're, if you have a table or a stool that's got one leg or three legs that are really short and one that's really long, well, that thing's not going to be very stable and you're asking for trouble. And so this is similar. However long those legs are growing, that's the level of your commitment. So five speed transmission first gear is like, Hey, she's cool. And she's like, Hey, he's cool. And you're hanging out. And this is actually the level I think where most people, this emotional stuff happens. 
and where it gets confusing is you're hanging out and you're like, oh, wow, she's really neat or he's really cool or whatever. And then you keep hanging out, but then you never have the conversation about, wow, we're in first year. <laughs> like, and so suddenly you're emotionally getting yourself into second gear and third gear, but you actually haven't shifted gears. You actually aren't going that fast to where you can shift into second yet. And so you, it's about having com clear communication about what, where you're at and what's going on which requires self-awareness, which is kind of hard, and some level of maturity to be able to navigate that socially, emotionally, all of it. I love that analogy. That, that's, I, I like that. I may, I may use that and I'll, I'll try to give you credit. I uh, give Kyle White credit. Thanks, Kyle. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. it. Kyle White. Shout out <laughs> to Kyle White sponsoring this episode. So, so this, okay, so this is, and that is helpful. And so now I understand because on its face, it's interesting, even calling it emotional dating, it's very interesting. And is that a term that's widely used? I would say so. At least, especially yeah. like 25 and under, I would say so. So, the, so in my, this is actually, this is fascinating to me because I think even the term itself reflects the problem underneath it. Because emotional dating is, that's what you described is not really emotional dating. There's no clarity in that phrase, emotional dating. <laughs> in the same way that there's no clarity in the relationships that you guys are describing. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's very interesting and, and not ironic that, that that has happened. Brian, you, you had said something, and I agree with what you said. I'm just going to make a little adjustment. You Good. had said that there's, there's a feeling of there's, or there's, that there's this intimacy that's developing, um, even though it hasn't been communicated right? It's kind of a hidden intimacy kind of thing. I would say that that is not intimacy. Mm -hmm. I would say that, that that's a pseudo intimacy, or this may seem kind of harsh, but, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to risk it, a delusional intimacy, because it's secret. Mm -hmm. And secrets um, hinder intimacy. They don't further intimacy. So if, you, if a person is feeling intimate with someone who they don't really know, and who is not opening up to them, pursuing the same goals in the relationship, you may have the feeling of intimacy, you may have a, a, a hope that you're being intimate, yeah. you're not. And that seems to be shown where as soon as you do something that is actually intimate, be honest about and try to address the relationship, if that actually destroys the relationship, there was no intimacy there to begin with. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah, and I think that is a, the risk that keeps people in that state of limbo. And I mean, I could speak from personal experience because I think it can be easier and almost from a place of self-protection or a lack of risk to say like, we're going to keep it right here without going further and like being in, I think like integrity, almost like having integrity in your relationships. And it's not to say you can't take time with things. I know like dating is forever one of those things I think especially in like the sub-Christian culture will be a little ambiguous of how things are developing but the clear communication or communication of intention I mean at least my encouragement would be um to pursue that and to be able to speak up and even address like are we emotionally dating if that is a shared terminology like someone would understand it if not have a conversation like this um because to the benefit of that could be a development of relationship with actual non-delusional <laughs> intimacy and that mm -hmm. takes vulnerability 
Yes. And I think what lo- what's lacking in this concept or this paradigm is a true sense of vulnerability. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that fits in with the reality of intimacy and commitment go hand in hand. I think well, you're probably going there, Sarah, but we're moving into the next question, really, of what Can are we- some clear, pragmatic... Oh, yeah. yeah. And we are moving there, but I wanted, there's a second half of this question. Uh, how can that be harmful without physical intimacy? Mm-hmm. Can you explain mm-hmm. that further? I, I, I'm not clear on yeah. the connection there. Sure. Yeah. So I think this can also go this with this paradigm of, you know, the less risk or vulnerability, you know, in that it almost keeps you in this, like, we put like quotes around like a safer place because you're not, um, going down like these traditional paths of like being clear about what we're saying or like I think we do equate I would say it's popular to equate a sense of physical intimacy with like dating or romantic interest where you're like we're holding hands we're kissing etc etc and I think that's where people tend to at least stereotypically like find the harm like even in the conversations we've had we've talked a lot about the integrated self where it's not just physical Um, But I think just that's like the poster trademark of like, oh, well, that's where the harm is. That's where like you don't want to set your fires is like if you can keep a handle on physical intimacy, then it's not harmful. But we don't often talk about the emotional piece or investing, you know, time, communication, indulging details of your life that are more intimate with somebody. Hearing that clarification, I think what I would say is, how can it be harmful without physical intimacy? I, I wouldn't, this, this concept of, mo- of emotional dating is not something that I would, it's not something I would, I mean, if it's working for you and you're satisfied with it, okay. <laughs> but it, it's not something that I would say recommend to someone who was struggling in a relationship or, or was looking for advice mm-hmm. about how to develop a good relationship. How can it be harmful without physical intimacy? I would, I would, if I'm hearing the question right, I would be cautious about saying, about suggesting that you begin trying to develop intimacy through your physicality, whether it's holding hands or kissing or, or other kind of uh, physical touching, even you know sex. Um, before you have, I, I think those kind of physical things should be discussed openly. It shouldn't be a result of trusting intimacy that you've already developed. Mm. And I think it does go into the, all this does go very much into the next question. Thanks for bringing, pointing that out, Steve. That's something that I looked right past. So the next question here, what, what are some clear pragmatic communication points to have with someone you are interested in dating or feel you are growing romantically intimate with? And then emotionally is thrown in there. So I, for, this is where I keep coming back to that gears analogy, because I think ultimately with under, with, with, What's beneath that analogy transcends uh, your status, <laughs> um, which ultimately comes back down to that like emotional maturity, that communication, uh, emotional and relational maturity to be able to like self-reflection, all of that stuff. And then communication, being able to communicate clearly. And like something that seems common is there's this thought like, okay, I like this girl or she likes me or whatever. There's an interest and in, and in if the people get so consumed with what if I mess this up? Mm-hmm. What if I mess this up? What if I mess up this opportunity? It will be lost forever. I will have missed out. Like there's this mindset of that. But like 
and, and it's easy for me because I'm now in a different place in life. I've been there. <laughs> like I know, I, I remember being interested in girls and being like, should I ask her out? Do I not ask her out? What do I do? I don't know. Like, and being con so concerned about that. This is anecdotal specific to me. But I think when I had deep conversations with my buddy Kyle and he and I processed so much of this stuff over a series of a couple of years where he, neither he or I were dating anyone and we weren't really even searching. And that was just a helpful season for us to have all these conversations to work through it. That reframed my mindset and the gears analogy came out in the midst of this while he and I were sitting in his, his forerunner looking at his stick shift talking about stuff. And it like that reframed my mindset to where the relationship I have with Amy, the, this woman I've married that I'm so thankful I did, I think happened because of that. <laughs> like, like a part of Amy in my story is actually having very clear communication, having emotional boundaries and, and communicating about where we each were and actually coming to a point where we're like, yeah, I'm not going to pursue you. Like I told her I'm not going to pursue you. And we actually, it was healthy and it was good because we both were able to be in that spot of communicating clearly of checking ourselves and checking in on each other as we were just friends. But then it was getting to a place where it's like, we're hanging out a lot. We need to talk about this stuff a little deeper. And so we kept doing that because we were applying the gears mindset, the underlying mindset of, I, I can't mess this up because there's nothing to mess up yet. <laughs> like, like it's, it's not like I'm messing up the woman I'm going to marry. <laughs> like, I don't even know her. <laughs> like, 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 people are freaking out about like, well, what if I screw this up and oh, I'll be ruined forever. Like, you don't know that because like, you don't even know that person that well. You haven't spent enough time with them to really know that that's the person you're going to marry and now you're screwing this up. Like, like it, it, it's just getting so far ahead of yourself. And by the way, if, if, if because you choose Italian dressing and not ranch messes up the relationship, this is not marriage material. Exactly, exactly. Sure. Like you should move on anyway. Like, like you should move on anyway. Even if that's a big deal, she'll have to get over it or he'll have to get over it, right? If you guys really mm -hmm. want to get married. Yeah. Absolutely. It, that alone should be an indicator to you that you've already gone too far and you're not thinking correctly about this relationship. Like that, that fear or that like, oh no, what if, like should be an indicator for you to take a step back and think, okay, wait a second. What do I really know about this person? How committed am I to this person at this point? Mm -hmm. And then the level of your risk is equal to that, not equal to I'm missing out on my wife. Like you're, you're okay. Like you're okay. Like for Amy and I, we were able to navigate that. I spoke clearly, communicated clearly. She responded well, told her I'm not going to pursue her even after we like, we made that clear. And then realized I actually really like this girl came back around to her and said, Hey, I know I said that, but we communicate well. And I think that's good. You know, honestly, and this is maybe helpful for somebody underneath for Amy and I, a part of the reason I said, I'm not going to pursue you. And she was like, right on is because we had a conversation where we were very frank and straightforward. I was like, I love hanging out with you. We enjoy a lot of the same things. We think similarly on the most important things. But honestly, I don't feel giddy when I'm around you. That was a straightforward, honest conversation, which was really hard. But like, 
I was like, I just don't feel giddy about around you. And I don't know if I need that because I've never been in a relationship where I haven't had that or it didn't start that way. And I thought maybe that's a problem. I don't know. And she and I talked through that and she was like, you know, there's parts that that are similar for me, but I, I do really like you. But we were able to navigate it to where when I came back around, I was able to communicate again. Amy, I don't necessarily feel giddy about you, but there are other things here that seem really good. And I would love the opportunity to explore that further. And like that, she was like, she said no. And then eventually she was like, sure. <laughs> but this whole time we'd been hanging out, but it still was clear communication about I am pursuing you. This is where we're at. Okay. You said no. All right. I'm not going to like, mm -hmm. we're just still just friends. And it didn't break the relationship because our level of commitment was understood. Yeah. And had been clearly communicated. And so even if, you know, I'm thankful that she and I got married and I feel giddy about her, but like, even if that hadn't happened, I'm confident we'd still be friends because we had communicated clearly with each other and straightforwardly and not emotionally right. out of anger, but out of like, I'm, this is where we're at. This is where I'm at. Um, where are you at? Okay. Well, this is how we need to respond to that, I think, or. Yeah, that's good. I often, with my, with my clients, one of the things I talk about frequently is the appropriate role of our emotions and, and how we make use of them in our life. Mm. And there's, on the two extremes, I think sometimes people can either ignore their emotions completely as irrelevant and not something to take it into account, or I need to be follow, I need to be directed by my emotions. My, I can choose my behavior based on how I feel. And I don't think either one of those are a healthy way to approach life. Right. At its best, I think emotions, um, we, we need to take them into account. They're information for us to consider, but they shouldn't um, choose our behavior for us. And so if you are feeling something towards someone, if you're feeling attracted to them, that's an emotion. You're feeling loving, you're feeling sexual, you're feeling attracted, you're feeling giddy. Jeez, that's a great word. Um, it's good to be self-aware that you're having that response to someone. But the question becomes, what, um, I'm having this attraction to someone, what do I want to choose to do with that in terms of relating it to my longer term goals? And I think when you're talking about clear, pragmatic communication to have with someone, that's the first one I think, is you have to ask yourself, what are my goals here? What, am I, what do I wanna mm -hmm. get out of dating? And there's a lot of options there. Um, yes. and, and, and some of them are, I would say, not as desirable. But like, for example, you could be dating for fun. You could be looking just for a fun time with the opposite sex. You could be dating for recreation, just as a social thing. You could be dating to, just to get to know yourself better because maybe you haven't dated that much and you, and you don't know how you're going to respond in those situations. You might be dating to make to seek someone who, to whom you can make a long-term commitment. Before you have that conversation with someone else, you need to be clear on what you want and what you're ready for and what your goal is. Mm -hmm. Then once you're clear on that, you, you should ask yourself, what will help you accomplish that goal? What kind of dating relationship will help you accomplish that goal? Mm -hmm. And then it's time to talk to the other person. Are they, do they have the same goals? And are, mm -hmm. is there, are there means of reaching those goals the same as yours? Right. So if you're looking for someone 
to date, uh, if you're looking for someone for a serious relationship um, and you're looking to have exclusive dates every Friday night um, and Sunday lunch and two other times of, you know, during the week, that's great. And that sounds very reasonable, but maybe they uh, travel for work and they may only be available one week on a month. You may both be looking for the long-term commitment, but is the way you want to go about getting that long-term commitment going to work with them? Maybe, maybe not. Okay. Um, and obviously if they're saying, no, I'm just out for a good time and you're looking to get to know yourself or you're getting to, for a long-term commitment, I would not suggest that. I don't think that that dating relationship is going to be helpful in both of you reaching your goals. Right. And what I would say, I think as someone who is still in the dating game, um, not to discount either of your experiences, but I, I've really I, like from a female perspective, learning, I don't know, in the, in the Christian church, I've lived in many different paradigms of like, you know, men are supposed to initiate or men are supposed to say certain things, but regardless of the situation, I think I've seen my dating life improve the more that I have clearly been communicated with and the more that I clearly communicate with others. And I've been so, I don't know, I think there is this anxiety around expressing um, our desire, our intention. Again, going back to like, there's some sort of weird comfort and ambiguity, which I would argue is only short term. I think long term, it causes more pain and exhaustion. But I, it's, it's helped me so much with, you know, like after a few dates, if someone's like, hey, like, I've been asked the question, like, where do you see yourself? Or like, what do you want to do with your life? Or like, hey, like, I've had a guy tell me, he's like, I'm looking to get married in the next few years. And the, those, that offering and that vulnerability and that risk taking helps us calculate our own risks and get, like you're saying, Steve, kind of like if we begin with the end in mind, um, it's so helpful. And I think the best thing you can do is like, don't, like not fearing both rejection in the sense of being rejected or offering what can be perceived as rejection or redirection or how, whatever platitude you want to put around it. But it is like, we have to not be so risk averse in that self-assessment. Um, mm -hmm. And also when we're, we're communicating with others and my roommates and I talk about this all the time in and out of this context, but honesty is so honoring and it's honesty with yourself. It's honesty with others. And it, it might not always be, you can't control how people receive things or react, but I think that you, that is how you get the best results. Um, in those scenarios and opening up others to share that same level of honesty and either you move on together or separately. But I think we, at least from my horizon line here, like with young adults, like it, there is this cloud of kind of anxiety around those conversations because we we travel so far ahead. We mind trip, we start to like um, doomsday our own thoughts and experiences. And really we just have to, we have to have those conversations with ourselves, those we trust, and then enter into these spaces with the end in mind. Um, and not be afraid of that. And not be afraid if like your goal in dating is different than someone else's. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love what you said, honoring. That was a thought I had, is that when you have those conversations early on, what you're really doing is taking yourself seriously mm -hmm. and, and honoring yourself and honoring the dignity that you have and the dignity of the other person. Mm -hmm. It's not mm -hmm. treating your... Um, relationship or your emotions as um, a cheap thing to be played with. Yes. You're, it's, you're, you're saying, no, I have dignity. This is not an easy process, but just because it's difficult and just because I have the potential to be disappointed doesn't mean I'm going to avoid 
doing what allows both of us to have some dignity in this. Yeah. Yeah. One thing within that beginning with the end in mind. Um, and if for people listening, their thought is, yeah, end in mind, marriage, like long-term commitment relationship. That's what I'm looking for. A little bit of a warning, I guess, is that that doesn't necessarily mean if this doesn't end in marriage, it's a failure. Yeah. And you've got to keep that in mind. Like it's not, it's not the end in mind. Isn't ultimately, I guess it's, it's a little nuanced, but actually I think it's helpful. The end isn't marriage. The end is healthy relationship yeah. that goes as far as it should. And reframing your mindset a little bit in that and to be able to communicate that well, as you have those conversations, the goal is that no matter where we end up at the end of this relationship, I want to be, have been better off for having been in this relationship. And I want the other person to have been better off for having been in this relationship. Yeah. If you can try and navigate that, it relieves some of the tension of this needs to end in marriage. Right. And the end is healthy relationship. And that might lead you to marriage, which hopefully would be a healthy marriage. Yeah. Or it might lead you away from this relationship, but it at least went in a healthy direction and they're better off and have learned about healthy relationship from having been in it. And so have you. Marriage is a healthy end, but I think some people get so zeroed in on that that they don't think about what marriage, healthy marriage actually looks like and what it takes to get there. And so focus on getting there well, and yeah. you'll actually arrive there. Yes. And perhaps your goal is marriage or a long-term commitment, um, ideally marriage, I would say in a, in a Christian context, mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that your objective for this particular relationship has to be that you can say, right. yes, I want to get married, but you know what? This is not the time. This, uh, mm -hmm. uh, this is not the time. And so for now, my objective for this in the long term is going to be to have um, a dating relationship just for fun right now. And that's, and that's good enough. But make that clear with the person that you're with. Yeah, I think that's so good. It's just, it is that mutual understanding of like, what are we doing? And if things start to change for you, to speak up, to not be afraid, again, just to be trapped by um, perception that a departure from a certain relationship is going to be a departure from your ultimate end goal. Um, and it, it, I think I just keep going back to like, have that, but like allow God to help build that resiliency or even that grit in you to be integrous to your own like wants and outcomes or something, expressing that clearly. I, this phrase that has stuck with me just in any relationship is uncommunicated expectations lead to disappointment. And it's vulnerable to communicate expectations, but the more so we do that in relationships, especially um, when we're thinking about dating, I think the better off we are. And you're practicing in that context. So maybe like Brian was saying, like you are, it's bettering you for either the next iteration of that relationship with that person or someone else. And I think to see it as a graceful experience where your goal is to honor the other person. And if you could leave saying, I honor that person to the best of my ability, that's a huge win for you and for them and is building you towards hopefully that goal that you have that relationship and to not be paralyzed or devastated um, if you have a bad iteration of a dating experience. And if this is something that plagues someone or like you carry anxiety, I think it really is present a lot with our young adults. There's so much fear around this that it, it feels like it's almost stunting our ability to have these conversations or express interest or be vulnerable when that's so important in relational development, not just for the dating experience, but for all of our relationships in life. 
and to see it as something that is worth initiating those conversations. And I'll say this for women too, because I know we could talk all day about paradigms, but um, don't get lost in even like traditional archetypes of like, I'm the girl, I can't say anything, or like, I'm waiting for the guy to initiate, I'm waiting. And like, maybe or or inversely, like as a, a male, you're like, well, I've been told this is the way relationships are supposed to be. I think there's a level that even, especially in the beginning of relationships, I don't think it's ever dishonoring to speak what you're feeling and to speak your expectations. And I mean, to not, again, tear anyone's world apart or paradigm apart, but to just to just go ahead and do that and talk about what relationship roles look like for you guys if you get to that place. But male, female, talk about it, bring it up. Um, it's worth it. It really is. And I think I've I've made the mistake of waiting on something to happen when I do have a voice to initiate something I could have saved myself from, I don't know, just that ambiguity. And I've learned that mm-hmm. we were both better off from those experiences in the long run. Agreed. It's very important that in any relationship that both people are able and willing to advocate for themselves. Yeah. Not to force themselves, but to advocate for themselves. Exactly. So kind of moving from that question, the next question we have here is when is it appropriate when you're in a relationship to share maybe some of your sexual past or shame with the person who you're dating? It's a good question. I think it's something that we've touched on uh, in the past episode, so, but just, and I think it's worth repeating. Those things are important to share. They're important to make each other aware of, but it's appropriate to do so once you have built a trusting relationship with them. And it's necessary to honor the dignity of each of you, right? So this, basically what I'm saying is this isn't first date conversation, right? Probably not. <laughs> well, we laugh at it and, and, and it is laughable, I agree. But sometimes people disclose these kind of things in an attempt to create intimacy that's not there yet. Right. Mm-hmm. Risk, right? Because yeah. it's, it feels very intimate to share those things, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that that intimacy has been earned. And if you haven't, and if that person hasn't earned the intimacy or you haven't earned it with them, to use Brian's analogy, you're going to be in the wrong year mm-hmm. for where the relationship is at. So do so when not doing so would dishonor the other person. You know, when you're starting to consider if you and that person are, for example, let's say you're running into some kind of relational problems or you're having emotional problems, or you're starting to decide and assess how um, uh, sexually compatible you are regarding your libido. And, and And you don't have to have sex or sexual interaction to do that, but you're starting to have some of those conversations about what it might be like to have a long-term relationship with them, then it might be appropriate to say, you know, this may be coming up because of this is what happened to me. Or this might be hard for me because of this. Are you okay working through that with me? Maybe things will be difficult regarding having children or, or parenting children or something like that because of some kind of shame in the past. So it's at that point where it would really hold back your your natural growth and would dishonor the other person because you're holding secrets that they really need to know to make a reasonable assessment of the relationship, then it's time to appropriately and in, in, in an honorable way, let them know what's going on, but don't do it in an attempt to create intimacy because that's not going to work. Mm-hmm. Good. Totally agree. And uh, I think we mentioned last time in some way, I think it's helpful if, if there's a place at which you're not sure exactly if this is the time, you can always kind of like test the waters 
to let him know, hey, there are things that I want to share with you, but I'm, I don't know if I'm quite ready to share with them, share them with you yet. But I want you to know, I, at some point, I will want to share my sexual past with you or what happened to me five years ago or whatever it might be. Yeah, I think that is good. I think that even in and of itself would be an appropriate conversation to have and say, okay, so you're not ready. Let's talk about when you think we might be ready for that without trying to do that in a way that's like, well, I really, I'm trying to push you to have it now. Let's talk about when we might be ready for that. Yeah. Um, so that's clear. And then also, if you say that to someone, I would make that a one-time thing. So don't drop that on the person every day. Yes. <laughs> because then the other person just going to be thinking, gosh, there's all these, these private things that this person is, is holding on to. This you know, this, it may seem like a time bomb getting ready to go off. So I would say honor them and say it once, and then it's your turn to own it when you're ready to talk about it, right? So don't put it on them to hold that tension for you. That's good. That's great, Steve. I, I think that advice as well for whoever, someone who might receive that sort of a comment as well is really important and helpful for people and needed in our community because we are broken people walking around but we are also redeemed people. There is no too far gone. Yes. Uh, even in a dating relationship, you can help others heal. And that should be a goal. <laughs> yeah. That people would be better off having been in there and to honor them and care for them in whatever their, their hurt or pain or past might be to help lead them towards the redemption and transformation and life that Christ intends. Yeah. Yes, I would agree with that. I would put it slightly differently. I would say your goal should be to have a healthy relationship with them so that, that God can help them heal. Because I don't want an individual taking on the role of having to heal someone else. Um, especially in a dating relationship where that's going to become very tired. Frankly, in a marriage relationship, that's going to become very tiresome. But in any relationship, if I'm the one who's responsible for getting you to heal, um, that relationship is, uh, is, is not going to be a healthy relationship. Amen. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. But I like what kind of what you're both saying. It's just like, it's taking Christ at his word. And I think that is just a vantage that the church, I mean, I, I grew up, I don't know when this first started, but like the whole like purity movement and like went to all the conferences that talk about like the cheapening of your, I mean, kind of like inadvertently the cheapening of your desirability or wholeness with the exchange of sexual relationships without getting too much on a tangent about that. I think there is something beautiful that we're invited into when we, when we understand our standing before God and others and to not act as we are not the healer, but we do get to love people and we get to point people back to Jesus. Um, and it, you can help dispel some of those things, but to not take on that responsibility as savior. Mm -hmm. Just, got to say that piece because I think that has really negative affected ne negatively affected friends of mine and even myself personally when we think about like our our place or like aspirations in relationship and then also meeting people and having these expectations on others that may have been broken before that you've been met and to not hold people and not same in a negative light because of that or not being willing to walk with someone through that uh kind of on that note what the next question we're jumping into is what is the best next step after you've engaged it says in sexual behavior with a partner who you're not married to but i think what the question was kind of asking was maybe sexual behavior that you had 
drawn a boundary towards but then stepped over that boundary with that person because i know for some when you know sexual behavior outside of marriage isn't in their moral paradigm it's not a big deal but um if it is something that you're like hey we decided to not sleep together before we're married and we did or we decided not whatever your boundary is how do you come back from that and what is a good way to initiate a conversation around that uh, it's a good question um i think it de parts partially depends on the circumstances what has actually happened uh has this is this the first time is this the 10th time is it the first time with this first particular person or is it the 10th time with the 10th different person is there a pregnancy are you committed to someone else in a marriage or long-term relationship? And, and this is an affair outside of that. So there's a lot of different circumstances that would call for different specifics. But I think it, you alluded to this, Sarah, as part of it goes back to what are your values and goals in this relationship, right? Do you have a value that you would be um, abstinent in, in some sense until your your relationship reaches another, another level of commitment like marriage. In general, what I would say is if you violated um, some sexual boundaries in any way, I think it's from a, and I think this is a, a Christian approach as well, you're gonna want to be open about your, your sin, confess your sin to those you've sinned against if, if that has happened, uh, get support for that, uh, confession if you need to and ask for forgiveness and then get some find people to whom you can be accountable and set up some new stronger boundaries that will help you avoid that violation in the future i think of the lord's prayer lead us not into temptation if you've had arrived at a place where you're like that was damaging and not good well, then you've already arrived at the place that you don't want to do it again, that you don't want to be in this place again. And so the next step out of that is to, like Steve's saying, confession, repentance, and then taking seriously, how do I not be led into temptation again? How do I not let uh, desire be birthed into, into sin and make that progression all the way to sin? It's communication and then setting whatever boundary needs to be set coming out of that. So, and this applies I think in a number of different areas relationally. Right. And I think it's, it's important to distinguish at this point, the difference between a boundary, a sin in general and, and a boundary. So, and mm -hmm. I talk about this a lot with my, my addict clients. So there's what we could call the sin in, in itself, right? The, for example, the sexual behavior um, with a, someone you're not married to giving into your, uh, addictive behaviors, whatever that might be. And the work I do, we actually, we call that inner circle behavior. And it, it comes from this um, diagram that we use where um, in the middle, there's a circle and the inner circle, kind of the core is all the behaviors that would mean that I'm back in my addiction. I've slipped, I've relapsed, I'm, uh, I'm drinking again, I'm using cocaine again, I'm uh, viewing pornography again, whatever it might be. But, but it's, a good, it's a good analogy for sin in general. Outside of that are what we call boundaries. Violating a boundary is not a sin, but violating boundaries makes it infinitely more likely that I'm going to sin. And so for that reason, I have the boundaries and I hold the boundaries because I know that once I violated the boundary, the sin is almost inevitable. Um, and the analogy I give is that, you know, if, um, if there's uh, if your property is on the other side of this brick wall, it's not a sin to look over the wall. 
but the closer you get to the wall, the easier it's going to be to get over the wall. And the moment that you're balancing on top of the wall and walking along the wall, you, you may as well have fallen over into there. So use those boundaries, not, not, as a, not because the boundaries are sinful, not because you say, well, we, once we have, let's say we had sex in our bedroom and, and our value was not to have sex until we were married and we weren't married. So it doesn't mean that once you go in your bedroom, you've sinned, you've not, but maybe you violated a boundary that's going to make it a lot easier for you to sin next time. So you might say, you know what, as a boundary to make sure this, this doesn't happen again, we are not going to go into a bedroom again alone until we're married. Good. That's really good. And I think that even that, that framework covers um, some other questions have been asked, so I'll just, I'll just add, include them for the sake of tying them to that response. But, you know, is it harmful to sleep with someone you're engaged to? Or like, what are some preventative measures when it comes to, and in this case, it's talking about sexual addiction. Um, but I think it, like you're saying, what, you know, what are your boundaries? What are, what are your goals in your relationship? If you're saying, um, we don't want to sleep together till we're married, then it's like, okay, looking at where your boundaries are, what you would, you know, what are you calling sin if that's, if that's what you're committed to, and then deciding like, what's the next conversation around boundaries? And is it, you know, like, is it harmful? Is this something that's harmful communicating that um, in response? But I think kind of coming from that, I do, I think it, it would be important to talk about the question and maybe this could be like our final question because it comes with a, a little series of questions, but it says, what are, what are preventative measures when it comes to sexual addiction? And then kind of off of that, if you're addicted to porn, how easy is it to become addicted to sex? How do you deal with the fear of becoming addicted to either um, or an anxiety around becoming addicted to sexual behavior? Uh, big topics, good questions. Let me take them in, in reverse, actually. Um, how do you deal with the fear of becoming addicted, of, of becoming an addict, let's just say, or becoming addicted? Uh, I wouldn't necessarily think that fear is a bad thing unless it is debilitating to you. But I think we should have a healthy fear of that which is unhealthy. Hmm. We should have a healthy fear of those things that, that have the likelihood to damage us. Now, I don't want people obsessing about fear yeah are obsessing about becoming an addict or or things like that but i think there's a healthy amount of fear we can have that will help us avoid those behaviors that might lead to addiction right. if you are addicted to porn how easy is it to become addicted to sex so in my in, in the field i work in as a therapist uh, and as a certified sex addiction therapist there is behaviorally there are certainly differences but addiction wise there's no difference mm. to being addicted to porn or being addicted to um, other kinds of sexual acting out and and the reason is because the mechanism in the brain works the same way okay. and there are neurological reactions in that happen in our brain that whether i'm experiencing something or my senses are experiencing something, someone else some, do something, I'm, I'm experiencing them almost in the same way. So whether I'm having sex or watching someone else having sex, um, neurologically, it's very, a very similar uh, response and a very similar uh, addiction, therefore. But I would say that it doesn't always happen, but 
sometimes those who become addicted to pornography will escalate their behavior to other types of sexual acting out, which although uh, pornography addiction and other kinds of sexual acting out, neither are desirable. There are certainly, I would say, weightier consequences oftentimes for acting out, for example, with prostitutes or um, one night stands um, or our anonymous sex than, than viewing pornography, for example. Go ahead. Oh, I think that's, I think you're right on, Stephen. I'm, I mean, of course you are. <laughs> <laughs> well, not necessarily, of course, but. Uh, uh, the, the, the things that fit within that, I mean, it, within scripture, we see sin is sin. The outworking of that is evident in our physiology. Mm-hmm. And like the challenges uh, therein are evident there. So yes. it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would say, though, that if, if someone does escalate beyond a pornography addiction to others, oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes there is some kind of uh, trauma uh, background to that, that that would lead to an, an escalation, uh, especially when those escalations become obviously unsafe uh, and, and illegal at times. And I, I would by no means suggest that if there's someone out there who is addicted to porn that I'm not saying, well, since you're addicted to porn, you may as well just go act out however you want. I would not suggest that. And I would suggest that you do whatever you can to reduce your, the harm you're doing because of your addiction mm-hmm. and get help for your addiction, no matter what the acting out behavior is. Um, yeah. Um, so the question then, what are preventative measures when it comes to sexual addiction? Mm-hmm. The best answer I have for this comes very is very appropriate in a church context. Uh, frankly, I think the more closely you can align your sexual behavior and your sexual values with what the Bible suggests is healthiest, that's going to it's going to give you a lot of tools that will help you avoid any kind of addiction, including sexual addiction. Sometimes, because of tra- uh, sexual trauma or abuse or other kinds of, of difficult experiences that someone has uh, gone through, they may be more um, likely to become addicted to sex or something else. Um, and in that case, it'll be important to get some treatment and some help for that trauma and, and not try to manage it through uh, addictive behavior. But uh, for, for the, the general person out there who hasn't had extensive trauma and isn't uh, you know, at a higher risk of becoming an addict than anyone else, what I would say is manage your behaviors in, in the healthy way that the Bible suggests that we do. Um, and you're, you've gone a long way to helping to make sure that you'll avoid addiction. Hey, Steve, kind of on that, um, maybe to clarify a little bit about addiction. Would it be safe to say that a, like a reasonable definition of addiction would be deciding not to do something, but then finding yourself doing it and maybe even getting worse? Sure. So there's, there's a couple, there's, let me, I can put it a simple way and then I'll put it in a more uh, complete way. So addiction is, is typified by two primary, um, two primary symptoms. Um, categorical symptoms. Number one is obsessive thinking. So if you're obsessively thinking about 
uh, a certain uh, behavior all the time and you can't stop thinking about it. That's what we would call an obsession. Um, and then the second is compulsive behavior. So obsessive thinking, compulsive behavior. If you find yourself compulsively behaving in such a way that you is out of control, those would be the two things that would start me down the path of wanting to assess whether you were actually addicted. But there are, and I can run through them if it'd be helpful, but there are a, a number of symptoms of addiction that we can uh, know very clearly. One of them is, are you engaging in more of the behavior or a higher intensity of the behavior than you had originally planned to? The second one is you have an ongoing desire to stop the behavior, lessen the behavior, or, or gain some control over the behavior, but you've been unable to do so. The third one is that you spend a good deal of time preparing for the behavior or recovering from the behavior. The next one is you have a strong craving or desire to engage in the behavior. The next one is that the behavior and engaging in it has resulted in, in failing to fulfill major role obligations in your life. So you're not doing the work you're supposed to do. You're not um, showing up in your family. You're not getting school responsibilities done, that sort of thing. So there, and there's a number of other ones that, that we can go through, but there's specific symptoms of, of addiction that apply across the board, including with sexual addiction. The reason I like, the reason I ask, or the reason I'm, is thinking about the label and the importance of the label and why does it matter? Because what you were saying before was, at least what I was hearing, and please correct me if I'm wrong, it's sort of like their sexual addiction often isn't necessarily about sex, but about how we process or deal with the hurts, um, the hopes, the certain aspects of life or how we cope with them or perhaps understanding some label of addiction in a way, which is maybe hard for people even to think about, but there's, there's a value in it because it helps us recognize we can get below the behavior so that then we can actually address behavior. Correct. I, I would say that in the almost without exception, so I would virtually all the time, addiction should be treated as a, as a symptom of a deeper problem. It's a secondary issue. It's a very, very rare person who has an addiction for the sake of the addiction. The addiction is usually begins as a way to cope with pain that the person feels hopeless about managing. And then eventually that the addiction starts to feed on itself. So, and there's, there's reasons for this, but essentially what happens is the, what used to feel good in the, the addictive behavior no longer feels good, but I'm, I'm obsessing over it and I'm behaving in it compulsively. Uh, and so it's become a problem in and of itself, but at its root, it usually begins with an attempt to cope with pain that's underlying that and and that could apply not just to sexual sin but even the person who's like i can't not play fortnite tonight or watch like you pick up your phone to watch a youtube video and you just can't stop <laughs> like you just keep doing it and you're like i need to go to sleep but you keep doing it or like it, these are all places in which perhaps symptoms apply yes or assessments apply that you can see where you, there's a place to ask the question, there's something deeper than just, I need to stop this behavior. I'm yeah. trying possibly to soothe myself or distract myself from something. And there's an there's a underlying worldview almost. 
Correct. Correct. And, and though addictions can become anything that become obsessive and compulsive in our lives that are used to soothe us uh, or to distract us. If anyone finds themselves doing, I would say anything compulsively and obsessively, I, I would caution them to, to consider what kind of help they, they may want to consider getting primarily just to figure out if they're, uh, they've become addicted to that behavior as a way of avoiding underlying pain. So, does that then speak to how preventative measures for addiction maybe begins in reflecting on our pain, perhaps, or how we process the world? It's a, it's a good question. And, and this was actually another question that someone had asked, what are some steps to heal from sexual addiction? Um, I would say that in some ways, pre the preventative measures and the healing measures are, are, are related. The first step I would say, because a person may not know how to, how, what to do with their pain, which is what led them to the addiction to begin with, right? They probably mm -hmm. exhausted their own resources. So what I would, I, I would make it a, the first step a little more simple than that. I would say that if a person is in that much pain and, and that feeling that hopeless, it's almost without a doubt true that they are isolated. Mm -hmm. Isolated themselves in reality or at least relationally from other people. And I think the first step would be to get out of isolation. Find someone who understands, is willing to learn how to understand you and can guide you along the path. Um, and for people who have a legitimate addiction, that's gonna be someone who has some expertise and a track record of success uh, and someone who you trust. I would say that it's important that a person be prepared for some discomfort in the short term the road to recovery, the road to facing our pains is uh, not an easy one in the short term, but in the long term, uh, it's the only way to find some, some relief and, and some healing. You're also gonna, for addicts certainly, you're gonna, you should be prepared to have to do things differently than people who don't have an addiction. Your boundaries are gonna have to be different and, and you're gonna have to learn to accept that if you're gonna stay in recovery. Mm -hmm. uh, you're gonna... Maybe yeah. can I jump in on that? I think that's actually a unique point, both for the person who maybe needs to make a steeper boundary, but also for other people to recognize mm. that if somebody, for if you're like, I need to make this boundary, but this just seems ridiculous. Well, it might be for someone who's not you mm -hmm. or in the situation you've gotten into, but for you, it's not ridiculous. It might be necessary. So you need to operate in that. And then similarly, people maybe can recognize if someone's like, I'm not going to watch that movie. Why? Like, well, because that's just not a movie I should be watching. Like, and you're like, what? Like, like PG-13, I, I don't know, whatever it is. It's a good movie, like whatever it might be. There, that might be, to you, seem like an absurd boundary, but that might be the boundary they need to hold yeah. for their own health and security, in a way. Correct. Um, the last couple of things I would say is for people who are trying to avoid addiction or people who are um, healing from addiction is is be ready to face your shame mm -hmm. and that's one of the, you need support for that mm -hmm. it's an easy thing to do and you, it's impossible to do in isolation uh, but just know that that's going to happen and that's a good thing although it's scary and and lastly it's important for you to take responsibility for yourself and stop blaming other people yeah. um, for your situation in life for your addiction for your missteps 
because when you take responsibility for the things that are not going well in your life, you'll also be able to take responsibility for when things are going well in your life. And that's a wonderfully empowering thing. It's really good. It's really good, guys. I feel like this uh, episode in particular has encouraged, hopefully all of them, but just self-reflection, reflection on relationship with God, how we see him in our lives, whether it's we're thinking about um, sin pattern or sin or a boundary or just really being able to identify and put language around um, our expectations of ourselves, others, having conversations and looking at the pain and shame. That sounds coupled together, really overwhelming, but I would just like to echo like, so worth it, what we've been talking about it. Do one thing at a time, <laughs> find someone that you trust to continue to talk about this. Um, if you need to see a professional, we have one here. There are many others out there. Um, there's, if you're in our community, Brian and I, and or even to help you identify someone to talk to, because that's how we move forward is through honesty and conversations. And thankfully the power and grace of who, who the Lord is um, through Christ in our lives. So thank you guys for continuing to, to help address these harder questions. And um, thank you to all who are listening just for being able to ask those things and go there with us. And um, we hope it, it moves you forward into some healing and understanding. So thank you guys. My honor. Thanks for inviting me. Of course. Thank you everyone for joining us. Thank you for participating and listening uh, as we stumble through these conversations, figure out how to have them, how to have do a podcast uh, at all. Uh, hopefully we've been improving. So thank you for joining it as we look forward to the topics that we need to continue to tackle and step into. We want to do that well. Yes. Yeah. We know that there is much still to be covered. And I know that Brian and I have talked extensively about wanting to find the right people to have those conversations with and taking the right amount of time to really dive in beforehand. So we do these conversations justice. We know nothing we do is entirely comprehensive, but if you don't hear from us on this podcast for a little while, it's because we are continuing uh, to work on it kind of behind the scenes. So one way you could actually partner with us in that is just praying with us into the next installation of this series, because we know that this will be an important ongoing conversation. And as always, if you guys have any comments or questions or even suggestions on topics, please reach out to us. You could email brian at brian.williams at calvarywestlake.org. You can email me, sarah.serwinski at calvarywestlake.org. Probably we need to look at my last name in the directory, but we are more than willing to hear you out. We want you to help shape these conversations and we have so appreciated your participation and your feedback. Yeah, thank you guys so much for joining us. Really looking forward to continuing this. Amen. We'll see you guys soon. Thank you.